All right, hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker, and today I'm excited to have for the second time on the podcast, uh, Abdullah from MDI Deep Dives. Abdullah, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, thanks for inviting back, uh, Andrew. I, I've enjoyed my first appearance, and you know, I'm, I'm glad to glad to be back. Well, look, you're you're a yet another value pod success story because uh, you came <laughs> on the pod last time. Uh, MBI deep dives. I think it was you were just about to put out your second issue, if I remember yeah. correctly. Uh, hadn't turned on the paid service since then. You know, I'll just dive into the the pitch for you, which is the way I start every pod. You know, since then you've turned on the paid service. It, it seems to be going really well. Uh, I'm a paid subscriber. Uh, I've really been enjoying it. I, not disappointed at all. You do one uh, deep dive into a stock per month, uh, and it is a real deep dive. I think your last one on Autodesk, which we'll talk about, was. 24 pages or so. And, you know, I think the highest praise I could actually give is as I was prepping for this pod, you know, I was rereading the report and I would be writing out bear questions or pushback cases and all these types of stuff. And almost every time when I wrote one, the next paragraph would say, hey, I know the bear case to the point I just made would be this, but let me address it. So I was like, oh, gosh, (laughs) darn it. Like my whole job's been done. But you were really doing a great job of anticipating the bear cases. And I I think that is the the sign of a really well thought out research service. And, you know, if you subscribe to MBI Deep Dives, which I would encourage everyone to do, I I think that's exactly what uh, they can and should expect. So I I don't know. I'll, I'll pause there. And, you know, anything else to add to that? Or do you want to put pump yourself up even higher. <laughs> no, I think you have done a, you know more than a reasonable job and you have been very kind and gracious uh, you know from the very beginning. Uh, the one thing that I can probably add uh, to what you have said is uh, I you know ever since I, I launched MBI Give Dives, uh, I have come to appreciate how much people want to know your opinion. Right, so I think you know my subscribers clearly understand that I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on HC. I'm not an expert on Autodesk. Right, uh, I'm a generalist. So uh, if you are a generalist, you know I, I'm pretty sure I'm speaking on behalf of all the generalists out there. It's uncomfortable, right? And uh, you know that uh, you don't know a lot of things that you probably should know, but you still kind of deal with that discomfort and uh, still kind of you know, want to uh, tackle the problems that you have. And what I really appreciate, you know, despite the fact that I may not have the, you know, a depth of expertise, uh, what people probably much more appreciate that, you know, uh, people want to know what my opinion is on a particular company I'm looking at. And sometimes they don't agree with my point of view, but that's fine that they're still getting my point of view. And, uh, you know, if, if people think that you are a thoughtful, thoughtful uh, you know, uh, intelligent person trying to understand something, uh, diligently, uh, and, and I think people appreciate that much more than your apparent expertise on a particular field or company or sector. You know, I, I really like that that thought on generalist versus expertise. So look, I think there are some sectors where you have to be an expert, right? Like if you're investing in startup biotech and you're doing it with a generalist yeah. framework, like it, that's a prescription to get your face right. But I do think like Twitter is one that, uh, you know, I've done a podcast on, we've talked a lot about and yeah. I do wonder, like, there are some people who are experts and they can go in and they they can give you all of the, the stuff on all of Twitter's different, like, very technical things and stuff. And I, I do wonder if almost taking a generalist expertise to Twitter and a bunch of other companies is better, right? Like, it, it's not, hey, I need to know exactly how Twitter's, the back end of Twitter's ad product work. It's mm-hmm. much more, hey, I have a general understanding that Twitter has some technical debt that they're accumulating, but I can see the whole picture and come in and, you know, 
apply a bunch of different frameworks and see how Twitter strategically is working and how they're accelerating or not accelerating or whatever. But I do wonder for you know 80 to 85% if bringing that uh, generalist mindset, it can be uncomfortable because an expert will come to you and say, hey, but did you know like Twitter's map product, that's two years behind where Google's product is. Right. So it can be uncomfortable, but I, I do wonder if that's really the way to approach most, not all, but most. You know, I absolutely agree. I think as a generalist, what I really insist upon is uh, like not to miss the forest for the trees, right? Yeah, uh, that's like the number one goal for I, I guess most generalists out there. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, there are lots of uh, you know details uh, that you know we probably don't know much about, right? Yeah, uh, it, it can be uh, uncomfortable. Like you know, uh, sometimes you you know obviously everyone can be wrong. Uh, most analysts will be wrong. Uh, you know, multiple or more than multiple times, like in, uh, in their analyst careers. Uh, so, and in many cases, you will find out that, you know, maybe what you thought was not so important uh, turned out to be pretty important, right? That's how generalists usually get things wrong. Yeah. Uh, so that's why it's uncomfortable. Like, you know, uh, is it really the, you know, you, you tend to kind of convince yourself, oh, I'm, I'm looking at the you know, forest, not the trees. But at times, you know, those trees can be important that can burn down the whole forest. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a that's why I keep you know saying that it can be uncomfortable. But sometimes, uh, you know, that specialists can get trumped by uh, the generalist kind of you know broader view, and 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 just being able to like see multiple sectors, multiple industries, and not being tied to a particular industry throughout your life. Yeah. Uh, you know, can can be eye opening and can be liberating at times. So uh, there's a you know place for both specialists and generalists in the, in the world. Uh, I'm definitely not going to tell that everyone should be generalist. Uh, and then all the biotech, you know, nobody's nobody's going to be able to tell like what what you should do with the biotech companies uh, if everyone becomes a generalist. Uh, so uh, there's obviously you know a place for both kind of you know group of people uh, to coexist. Well. Well, speaking of specialists versus generalists, you know, I think you you put it in your write-up on this company, but it is a little strange for you and I as investors to be talking Autodesk because Autodesk apply appeals main, you know, not appeals, they are a product for engineers and architects and everything to design things. And I have never used an Autodesk yeah. product. I feel like I have a good grasp of what they do in the fundamentals, but it is a little weird to be talking about a uh, you know, a, an engineering company and not not have actually really used the product or subscribed or anything, but uh, that's the way. Uh, let's you know what, Andrew? Uh, oh, let me oh. just stop stop you there, and I want to give you a full disclosure. I'm not an engineer myself. I have also never used AutoCAD products, and if any engineer out there, you know, listening to our conversation, I'm pretty sure they're going to find a lot of faults, a lot of you know, probably <laughs> misstatements. Uh, but uh, hopefully, we'll, we're not going to you know, we're going to see the forest uh, pretty clear together. Uh, even if we get some details wrong uh, in terms of the product. Well, why don't, uh, I think that's a great jumping off part. Your post, you know, I, I think the headline was great. It's Autodesk, the horse for the infrastructure decade. So why don't we kick it off, you know, for, for the other generals out there, what, who and what is Autodesk? What do they do? And why are they the horse that will kind of drive the infrastructure decade? Right. So most people probably have heard about AutoCAD, you know, more than Autodesk. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends uh, who are like not in like software or like, you know, engineering space, uh, um, like they told me, oh, AutoCAD is uh, actually Autodesk product. Like I, I didn't know that, you know, something like Autodesk even exists, right? Uh, so AutoCAD is widely known, uh, much more widely known than Auto Autodesk. So 
uh, I would say Autodesk is a global leader uh, for uh, computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing, computer-aided engineering uh, space. Uh, it's a pretty global company. 67% uh, of its revenue come from outside the US, right? So you understand how the global nature of the company. Uh, it based in you know, the software products that Autodesk has, and it's it, it's not only uh, AutoCAD but also Revit, uh, which is also like you know pretty big company. It's, it's actually Revit is actually the single biggest revenue driver for for uh, Autodesk. So uh, AutoCAD, Revit, uh, Maya, 3ds Max, uh, uh, Inventor, Fusion 360. Uh, so they have like 70, 80 products, uh, software products, but. Essentially, these you know six seven products are what they you know drive majority of the uh, revenue, and these products basically allow you to design, uh, fabricate, manufacture, uh, or build anything uh, you know by allowing you to visualize uh, and 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 uh, you know early in, in uh, visualize and or simulate uh, early in the design process uh, to kind of you know be able to see what it will look like you know, after kind of the thing is built or manufactured. Uh, so that's what, uh, in general, what uh, these software products do. And uh, and yeah, you know, it, it's it's actually a pretty old company. It's not some up and coming uh, know, software company. It was like launched in 1982. Uh, John Walker, who is the like founder of Autodesk, he basically convinced like 12 other engineering friends to pull like $59,000 together. And, you know, 40 years later, it's like a $60 billion company. So, uh, so yeah, and from the very beginning, they were supposed, uh, they were going after the CAD market, computer-aided design market, right? But you know, from then on, from those early days, it has kind of uh, expanded its uh, uh, horizon to uh, go into you know, manufacturing uh, and construction, uh, uh, you know, engineering, architecture, uh, as well as like media and entertainment space as well. Uh, so it has become sort of a global and like, you know, multi-industry uh, focused, uh, you know, as a company uh, over the last like three, four decades. So when I was in college, everyone used to always, and it, it, that is an increasingly long time ago, but everyone used to always feel bad for the architecture students because, you know, at the end of the semester, all the architecture students were pulling, you know, all-nighters constantly to get whatever their architecture products done were. And my understanding, tell me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is, they were almost certainly, I think it's Autodesk Revit is probably what they were using, but they were using an Autodesk software to build whatever hypothetical building they were going to be turning in for their final project. So, you know, you could ex extrapolate that to if you are an architect and you are designing a building, you are probably using an Autodesk software to design that building. And that's what you're going to build all your plans on. A am I thinking about that correctly? Yes, you are absolutely thinking it right. And, and that's a, a very conscious effort from Autodesk's part to kind of encroach into all the universities in the world uh, to make sure all the engineering students, all the architecture, uh, you know, architects, future architects of the world yep. start using Autodesk products. And it's given for free for eager student. It's free for you. Uh, the, the, the idea is to kind of, you know, get you used to that product. Think about like an you know, Excel. Like if I ask you, like I have some better product that that is much better than Excel. You just have to be able to like put in, let's say two months of, uh, you know, work to kind of learn how to use that software. And then you can uh, switch from Excel to, let's say, that, you know, up and coming software. Uh, my guess is you're probably not going to say yes to that, right? Uh, unless it's like, you know, 10x better product, right? Uh, so 
so that's like the goal for Autodesk to kind of you know make sure every student out there starts using Autodesk product, and so that when they become professionals, right, you know, uh, they don't want to switch to some competing product. And even the in the you know the companies or the uh, professionals in the in the workplace, they also understand that and people get used to that, and they are also used to that. So they you know so it's a kind of a high switching cost that's embedded, and it's it's funny because. Uh, Pat Dorsey in his book, like, you know, uh, five successful rules for, uh, investing. He specifically highlighted Autodesk uh, as an example for high switching costs, right? Yep. And, and, and that this strategy that you, you know, go into universities, colleges and trade schools and, uh, you know, and give it, give your software product for free so that they know how to use it. And once they know how to use it, that human inertia kind of takes over. Uh, so unless and until the competing products are like 10x better, uh, you are you have very little incentive to kind of you know move to a competing product. Yep, and, and it's a a it's funny that you know the Autodesk model and the Excel model get the people trained when they're students and they grow up and they'll use your product. I mean, it seems like so many people like I think Twilio uh, is really big into get engineers trained when they're at a startup to use our products because when they go and do yeah. their next thing or when the thing grows, everybody will be used to that standard. But the other interesting thing is you you mentioned Excel, which I agree with. And the other, and maybe we're jumping a little too far ahead here, but the other interesting thing about Autodesk products is a lot of their files, you know, I think it's like .red is the thing, is the way they share. And very similar to Excel, hey, if you go make a startup that's cheaper, better than Excel, there's switching costs, but there's also anti-network effects, right? Because everybody else uses Excel, they sell them yeah. send things in Excel files. I think Autodesk has a lot of that going forward too. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yes, yes, there's definitely, you know, network effects is certainly an overused word at this point, right? We we tend to probably see network effects more than there usually is out there. Uh, but it's hard to argue otherwise uh, when it comes to Autodesk. Uh, you know, it, you know, for generalists like me, I think, and, and this example, I kind of came across again and again, it's, it's sort of like Excel. Like, you know, uh, if you are like a, very proficient programmer and you can use to you, you, you can use like you know a higher functionality software that's let's say better than excel but if you're dealing with let's say external you know clients or external people or even like you know people within the organization who probably are not as good as you are uh, dealing with like you know software tools uh, then you kind of want to lean towards more what is industry standard right what everyone you know knows how to use so uh, so for a, for a up and coming startup, if they really want to uh, encroach into Autodesk space, uh, it's 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 a very chicken and egg problem. Like you know, they have to kind of at once convince a lot of people together uh, to switch to a competing product, right? Uh, so there's definitely network effects, element of network effects uh, for Autodesk products, uh, uh, you know, especially for AutoCAD, Revit, uh, and things like that. And if I remember correctly, uh, I, I I can't remember if I read this for from your thing or from uh, the from some other anecdotes that I was reading when I was brushing up. But I think a lot of contracts, like if I'm a you know if I'm an engineering firm and I hire an architect to do this, I think a lot of contracts specifically state state that the files have to be delivered in uh, Autodesk format. Am I thinking about that correctly? Obviously, that's yeah, they they have a format called .dwg file, right? So Yes, and uh, so that's that's part of it. And it's funny because uh, Autodesk shared this data, like 
on on LinkedIn. Uh, so people have like seven million, seven million people listed Autodesk as their skill, and one million people you know mentioned Revit as their skill, right? And the next best is like you know two fifty thousand, right? The competing products or you know one hundred fifty thousand. So there's like a huge you know gap between the market leading like industry standard and kind of what you expect to see if you are dealing with an industry standard versus let's say. Uh, much small, uh, you know, or like, you know, like a up and coming product. Uh, so there's a huge gap between, let's say, Autodesk's products like Revit and AutoCAD, and then the like next set of competitors, which are kind of like compact together. It's not like, you know, the second alternative, uh, the, sec the difference between second and third alternatives are huge. It's not the case. So they're, they're like bunch, like they're kind of bucketed together and like kind of, you know, uh, neck on neck. Uh, of all the uh, competing alternatives, so there's no like clear winner, even like the uh, even for the like competing uh, alternative, right? So there's Autodesk and there's like all the rest in like you know like you know uh, after like in you know, a six feet deep. So uh, so that's that's how uh, you kind of realize that Autodesk has a huge stronghold uh, in in this uh, at least in the AEC market, which is basically architecture, engineering, and construction market uh, compared to any of the potential alternatives. So I think almost just by letting the conversation flowing, I think at this point, we've probably done a nice job of establishing like kind of the moat that Autodesk has built around their products. Do you, do you think there's anything I, I'm going to we're going to go into other upside things in a second. But do you think there's anything about the moat or just how strong the Autodesk business is that we we've kind of missed in this initial discussion? Yeah. So uh, when I think about Autodesk, uh, it's almost like two different companies, like within a single company. Yep. Uh, so what? At one hand, you have AEC. So let me just you know go back and, and probably explain how we do it. So Autodesk basically reports its revenue in like five different uh, segment. So one is AEC, that is architecture, engineering, and construction, right segment. Uh, then is uh, manufacturing, design and manufacturing. Uh, third is uh, media and entertainment, right? Uh, fourth is AutoCAD and, and AutoCAD LT. LT is basically the light version of AutoCAD, which is you know cheaper but also provides a fewer functionality. Uh, the reason they, uh, although uh, you know AutoCAD is basically part of AEC, like most AEC professionals use AutoCAD product, but it's also it has like wider functionality. So even like design and manufacture would also use. Uh, you know some uh, AutoCAD products, uh, so uh, so that's why it's like uh, reported separately. And so that's like the fourth and the fifth one is basically the others or miscellaneous, right? Uh, and so if you think about like AutoCAD and AEC is like in a single bucket. Again, let's let's imagine that's like a one company, AEC and AutoCAD, uh, and that's basically almost seventy percent of the revenue, right? And 20%, roughly 20, 22% is basically design and manufacturing. 6% is media and entertainment. And whatever the, that is rest, that is others, right? And, you know, it's very strange when you kind of uh, do a deep dive on Autodesk, it almost feels like they have a, they, they have a very different DNA within that you know, auto, Autodesk you know, company for AEC and, and AutoCAD and man, design and manufacturing, right? So in design and manufacturing, they are the laggard, right? They are trying to kind of compete with Dassault, SolidWorks, and PTC, and AutoCAD is basically the third player in that in that space. 
and 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 like AEC and AutoCAD, they are like the quasi monopoly, and like they have a very strong hold, and so they have a very different approach in terms of how they think mm-hmm. about these two markets, how they kind of go to market, and uh, how to approach you know uh, like in you know, dealing with custo- customers. So when you, when you talk about modes, you know it almost feels that we need to have separate discussion for AEC and like you know manufacturing. So I, I guess the kind of discussions that we had so far is largely relevant for, let's say, AEC yep. and AutoCAD, and not as relevant for, let's say, manufacturing. And the way AutoCAD thinks is, like, they they believe, you know, they're going to be able to pro- protect uh, AutoCAD and, and AEC. It's already in the bag, and it's like a very high margin, uh, you know, segment for them. And this is what that's driving, like, 70% of their revenue. Uh, but Autodesk believes for them to grow faster, they have to kind of be a much bigger player within the manufacturing sector, right? And their approach is very different. It's almost like an, uh, you know, startup mentality uh, yep. that they have within that sector. And they they came up with this uh, platform named Fusion 360. And when you see the fun- functionalities uh, Fusion 360 provides and, and compare like on an Apple to Apple basis to competing products like in the Dassault's uh, SolidWorks or PTC, the price point is just ridiculous, right? So it's almost like you know, t- you know, fifteen to twenty percent of what the competing products are charging, right? Uh, so the idea is very actually the idea is not uh, very different from Autodesk's perspective. So although Revit is kind of you know has a quasi monopoly at this point, that wasn't the case uh, like twenty years ago. Yeah. So twenty years ago. They started, Revit was a small startup and uh, Dassault's Katia and like, you know, Bentley, uh, Graphisoft, those were like the leading players at that point in the in a building information modeling space, uh, which is where Revit is dominant. And Revit's approach was to collaborate and, and, and work with a small set of customers and really, you know, serve that niche so well that you end up becoming like you know attracting a lot uh, in a lot bigger customer set. Uh, it, it's sort of like the classic innovators dilemma, like it's, you know, Clayton Christensen talks about uh, in his book. Uh, and and they started with a niche, and they and and the competing products of like you know Dassault's, uh, Ketia, or like you know other 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 companies, they were not willing to lower their prices. Right? Uh, they were charging the tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and Revit was basically a fraction of that uh, compared to competing pro- uh, products. So, uh, you know, over, over, over a long period of time, what happened? What ended up happening is Revit became the industry standard, and you know, uh, and other players kind of lagged so far behind. Uh, so they're trying to do the same. So Fusion 360, arguably, is a better product. Is a better product compared to competing alternatives. But it's it's charges like fifteen to twenty percent of the company products, right? So it's obviously not as high margin product or as high margin like you know uh, segment for Autodesk compared to you know AutoCAD, AutoCAD or AEC. So the idea is basically you know milk AutoCAD and AEC as much as you can and reinvest like aggressively uh, into the manufacturing segment. And the bet is that they will be able to protect protect the AEC and Autodesk. Uh, sorry, uh, AutoCAD segment, and in the meantime, and simultaneously, they will be gaining share, which is what they are doing. They have been outsold. Uh, they have been outselling 
uh, dissolved for last three quarters in unit, you know, as a unit perspective, not in terms of revenue dollar, because like I said, they charge like, you know, 15, 20% of the competing alternatives. Uh, so overall, I think, you know, I, I would I would strongly suggest anyone who is listening to this uh, to go and uh, read uh, Baron Bard's uh, recent design conference transcript. So Autodesk participated in that conference and they kind of laid out their strategy uh, and, and elaborated like deeply how they think about Fusion 360 and why they think they would be able to encroach into manufacturing space and uh, be able to compete with uh, you know, Dassault SolidWorks and things like that. Uh, you know, they did a pretty, pretty good job kind of outlining their philosophy. And, and the, the point about switching costs that we mentioned for AutoCAD and AEC, that's true for, uh, you know, uh, Dassault SolidWorks as well. Like, so, so I, I had the same question, like, you know, why would Autodesk be able to kind of encroach into uh, solid workspace. And, and obviously Autodesk also understands that. And the way kind of they're building the platform is they're not trying to convince people to switch, right? They're saying, we have built a platform that you, know, you can use SolidWorks as well. Like if you, if you update your SolidWorks model, that can also be updated automatically into Fusion 360. Yep. So you start using Fusion 360 for some projects, right? Or some, uh, or some like, you know, some parts of the project. And I guess the philosophy of the idea is once you start using it, you, you, you see that it's a better product. You see that it makes more sense to kind of, you know, uh, to in, incrementally increase market share for the future projects. And then once you do that, or if you do that for a long period of time, like five to 10 years basis, all of a sudden you can become the industry standard, which is what they have done for with Revit, right? Uh, I don't expect it to be easy. I don't. I don't think the market is pricing Autodesk in a way that uh, they are going to be winner in the manufacturing space. You know, we don't have to believe in that uh, to let's say buy Autodesk at this price. Uh, but it's it's a it's a nice little possibility optionality that if it pans out, you know, uh, that can be pretty significant. So as you did in the uh, in your write up, you addressed a lot of the bare points that I was going to bring to what you were saying earlier. But let me just back up a second. So. Uh, basically, with the Fusion product with manufacturing, they're trying to do what they did with Revit about 20 years ago, right? There's legacy players who charge a lot of money. They're going to go after the lower to middle end with a better product that's priced lower, try to take share, and then they'll use that and grow over time and eventually kind of subsume the, you know, it starts where the other products price 5x as you and you're better, but you've got a lot less distribution. And then all of a sudden, once you've got 40% of the market and you're 20% of the cost, that yeah. legacy player is in a lot of trouble, right? Because people are fleeing from them left and right. And if they cut their costs, they destroy their whole business. It, it's yeah. a really weird thing. So I, I guess my three questions here would be, uh, my first question is, you know, it sounds like uh, Dassault, their competitor, and them both combine manufacturing with, uh, you know, the au architect Autodesk side. Why do these two businesses belong together? It seems like these are separate businesses attacking separate markets. Like they are software and design, but it seems like architecture and manufacturing design should be very separate. So why why are they together? Uh, no, so uh, architecture, construction, and engineering like a separate segment, and design and manufacturing is a separate segment, right? So no, no, they're no, I just not why are they together under one roof? Because it's not just Autodesk that does this. Their competitor has these two segments, right? Are there are there synergies? Is there software synergies? It doesn't seem like there should be, but obviously if everybody's got these two businesses under one roof, like what's the advantage there? And that would also apply to if there are synergies, then audit, the synergies with Autodesk being largest and it might help kind of drag the small one up over time, if that makes sense. 
I mean, there is uh, an element of synergy in the sense that, and that's why I, I mentioned like, you know, AutoCAD products are used not just by AEC professionals, but also like design and manufacturing and like, you know, media and ent entertainment and, and some other, uh, you know, segments as well. Uh, so uh, there, 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 is a there is an element of synergy, but it's not like a significant part of it. Okay. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, what probably many of these companies thought, like, you know, once they kind of, you know, got better in a particular, you know, industry or segment, they thought about adjacent industries or, or sectors they could get into for future growth, right? And that's why probably most of these players ended up uh, going after these adjacent sectors. Okay, so then the other thing you mentioned is with Fusion, they're trying to attack it and they're saying, hey, you don't have to give us all of your products at once. Use a couple products, use it for, thing, you know, we, we're a lot cheaper, just try it. And we we can take the other people's, uh, anything that you start in the other people's formats, we can take them and put them on. And I think your, your most obvious question is, okay, if they can do that with manufacturing, why can't someone come along? Why can't a competitor come along and do that with Autodesk on the AutoCAD side, right? Like, hey, yes, everybody uses AutoCAD, but we're we're fully complying with them. We integrate. Use us for cheap products. If you're a startup looking to save a lot of money, use us because we're compliant and people can switch into AutoCAD easily. So why isn't what they're trying to do in a different business a risk to their core business? It is a risk. Uh, it is a risk. And I think, you know, uh, when you today shared on Twitter, uh, like, you know, you are going to chat with me and someone, I think, posted a question, like, you know, 10 years from now, if Autodesk is 50% down, what happened, right? Yep. And and my answer would be, uh, most likely what happened was Autodesk uh, neglected AEC and uh, AutoCAD, you know, segment so much. Uh, and the customers ended up, uh, like, being, uh, like, you know, so angry at mm -hmm. them that they... Uh, ended up you know, going to competing products or, or let's say uh, someone else kind of, you know, uh, came up with a better product that kind of, you know, uh, solves these issues that they have. Uh, right now, uh, you know, Autodesk is definitely uh, try, Autodesk has absolutely no incentive to kind of make it compatible, right? So it is, other, you know, a competing company's uh, incentive and like owners to kind of come up with a product that is compatible with Autodesk or AC, right? And and that's 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 a possibility. That's that's a, that's a potential risk. And that is why I I also mentioned this in in my write up that uh, Autodesk should not really test the limit in terms of how much like more they have on AC and and uh, AutoCAD segment. Uh, and and part of the reason they they did was they were transitioning business model from, you know, legacy perpetual licensing model to subscription model. So the revenue was definitely, you know, uh, was not there, you know, took a, a beating. Uh, and if you think about like the income statement, like the, as a percentage of our, like, you know, revenue, R&D was like 40%, uh, uh, sales and uh, sales and marketing was also like 40%. So it, it if you look at, Autodesk's income statement, like in the last five years, it, it looks pretty messy and it looks pretty, you know, it's, it doesn't look comfortable for anyone. Like if you just superficially go through the income statement, right? And don't consider the fact that they were actually transitioning a mod, you know, from yeah. legacy to subscription model. So, and Autodesk, you know, also provided some long-term free, free cash flow guidance to kind of calm investors that we know what we're doing. You know, this is the way to go and, and this is the future. And I absolutely agree that this is the future and this makes a 
you know, a whole lot of sense to move to subscription model. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what happened is because of those like long-term free cash flow guidance, uh, they were very, you know, cautious in terms of managing expenses. So they were kind of, you know, they were going after manufacturing, which required a lot of R&D efforts, a lot of sales and marketing efforts, uh, but they were not doing as much for AEC, right, or AutoCAD segments. Uh, hopefully, once kind of this building tr uh, transition is complete, and I mean, we're almost complete, it's pretty much complete by this point. So hopefully, going forward, uh, they will go back and, and start investing with Revit and you know, AutoCAD and, and AEC segment overall. And the reason I'm hopeful is uh, in last year, you know, middle, middle of last year, there's like, you know, uh, something like 15, 20 architecture farms based in the UK uh, uh, issued a press release uh, for Autodesk that, you know, uh, they have all these complaints about Revit and uh, Autodesk about in terms of pricing, in terms of like, you know, this business yep. model transitioning and all that. Uh, and that, you know, may sound like a pretty, that may sound pretty ominous uh, for shareholders, for customers, for everyone, or for every stakeholder. But I think, you know, in the long run, that's, that's, that's probably, that will pr prove to be very helpful for shareholders because yeah. now Autodesk knows that they cannot neglect as much as probably they did for AutoCAD and AEC. And, and within, within, within uh, Autodesk, AEC, uh, you know, employees, were not overjoyed how much Autodesk was focusing on manufacturing for like future, which is in my opinion, the right decision. Uh, they should focus more on manufacturing, but at the same time, if there's a balance, uh, which perhaps uh, Autodesk missed a little uh, when they were focusing too much on manufacturing. So hopefully going forward, they will, uh, you know, kind of make that balance, uh, uh, you know, clear and make that balance more, uh, uh, more conducive for customers and shareholders. And if that's the case, I think it will be even harder than it already is uh, for, uh, for you know, competing products to kind of encroach into Autodesk space. And, and what, what's really encouraging, despite the fact that there has been all these complaints for, from customers and Autodesk has actually was gaining share, like you know, other alternative uh, uh, pro core, which I think is, uh, has already, I think he has already, uh, I think he, it's, it's filing for IPO. And uh, basically their revenue expansion rate was 120% for the last, you know, uh, I think two, three years. And Autodesk has been around 125 to 130% uh, within AEC. So it means that they have, they're not losing market share. And I actually talked to someone, uh, a, a buy side analyst who talked to those like architecture firms that, that wrote that, you know, letter or press release and basically, they 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 pretty much told uh, that analyst that they they could not uh, get out of Revit if they wanted. And yep. They tried, and they all came back because it's just too cumbersome. And it's just too complicated. And and yes, I I think you know even a, even an article that I was reading basically mentioned that they could not find a single uh, you know architecture firm that actually moved away from Revit. So <laughs> you can understand how how entrenched the product is in that industry. And there, there's almost no better uh, sign of, like we can discuss all we want, the hypothetical switching costs, but there's yeah. almost no better sign of a moat in a business that is sticky where your customers come out and they say, this product sucks, it's overpriced. They put like multiple firms get together to put out a press release. And right. then you go talk to them like, so, so you guys left the firm, right? And like, oh no, we, we could never do that. It would be, it'd be way too difficult for us. Like there, there's just no better sign. 
Uh, you mentioned the long-term free cash flow guidance, the investments and stuff. And I, I want to talk about those in a second, when, especially when we get to the bear case, actually. But, but I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the upside. You know, I think there's two upside cases, potential upside cases we haven't talked about so far. The first would be, I mean, look, Auto, Autodesk owns the architecture construction side. Like we've talked about, again, we just talked about how people can't switch off. Um, you know, I, I can't remember where this idea got implemented. It might have been the scuttlebutt brought up, but you know, Microsoft has constantly used their distribution dominance to launch new products, right? Like historically, Internet Explorer. You think Microsoft Outlook? Uh, the new one is Microsoft Teams has absolutely has taken so much share share from Slack because. They integrate into everything. If you're a business user, it's just very easy to use Teams, right? So mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people think the long term for Autodesk is some type of construction cloud, right? Or architecture cloud where it's not just using Autodesk. They, they use it to just expand into all these things and they kind of own the everything construction software as a service. How do you think about that type of, obviously that's very pie in the sky kind of ephemeral, but how do you think about that upside and the possibility to get there? That is a dream, right, for Autodesk shareholders uh, that it eventually turns into Microsoft of like you know this construction industry, uh, and and I, I like to think that's not a pie in the sky. It's it's probably in the realm of the possibility. Uh, and part of the reason is, and and you know like for any I I think uh, companies or for any uh, I guess you know invest investment, uh, a lot depends on management, right? Yep. Uh, and when I think about what's going to happen for the next 10 years for Autodesk, uh, like I, I built a very conservative model. And as per my model, that's like, you know, Autodesk will probably generate like roughly 30, $32 billion of free cash flow next 10 years. So that's like half, more than half the market cap of Autodesk right now. So that's a lot of free cash flow that you have to deploy, either deploy or buy back shares, like things like that. And uh, my guess is they'll probably not be super aggressive in terms of buying that shares. So there, there will probably be a lot of acquisitions, a lot of talking acquisitions, right? So, so that's why you know I, I mentioned that the lot will be dependent on management's capacity and ability to kind of make those talking acquisitions, integrate to that you know current platform, and continue to deeply penetrate the market uh, across the globe, right? So that you become Sort of the Microsoft of the you know engineering and construction sector, manufacturing sector for the world. Uh, to what extent? And it you know it's not a risk-free thing uh, when you do those acquisitions like on a day, on a yearly basis, even on a once or one or twice. Uh, you also increase the integration risk, right? Yep. So, so you know that's why uh, it, it is dependent. Uh, you know, probably like most invest investment. In this, you know, SaaS space or in you know, a software space, uh, these days it depended on the management capacity to kind of deploy the, all the free cash flow that they generated. And I have I've spoken with you know a bunch of people on um, Andrew and Agnost, uh, you know, the CEO, and he's widely loved. Uh, he's widely uh, revered within the industry and what he has done with Autodesk. He has been with Autodesk for since 1997, I think. And he's been CEO since 2017. So he became CEO and he kind of, you know, uh, turbocharged this build, uh, like, build, like business model transition process from legacy perpetual model to uh, to like subscription model, which in my opinion requires fair amount of courage because you are destroying the 
you know, the look of income statement and like it looks pretty messy. And unless you're really confident that this is the way you should go and unless you have a sense of ownership, right? That, you know, I, I want to have a legacy. I want to leave a mark uh, on this company by doing what's great for this company in the long term. And probably, you know, he could have done probably something like, you know, keep, keep the legacy model, you know, grow like, you know, high single digit rate and like three, four years down the line, he retires and that's it, right? Uh, but he chose not to do so. Uh, so my guess is uh, it's possible that, you know, uh, uh, and like, given his reputation, uh, I, I definitely, uh, I'll be rooting for him that he will be able to kind of, you know, do this tacking acquisition, being able to integrate uh, that, the possibility of being a Microsoft for this, you know, uh, industry uh, may become a reality, uh, maybe in the, you know, ten years from now. Well, so actually, the last thing I was going to talk about was capital allocation, and and you, uh, you are front ran me again. So let's <laughs> actually stick on the management, right? So you say management's beloved, uh, management's loved. He's been with the company for a long time. Everybody likes him. You know, it's tough to look at the Autodesk zero price from 2017 to 2021 and really criticize anything he's done, right? But I'm going to try. Uh, you know, I, I look at I look at him and I say, hey, the the switch from uh, by from license to subscription started before him, right? So it's not like he's the one who drove this. In many ways, he's reaping the fruits of that past success. And I think the biggest red flag I saw when I read the report is R and D spending at Autodesk peaked in FY16, and then it came down for the next three years. And it started to come up again, but you know, as a percentage of kind of sales or opportunity here, it, it, it's nice that R and D has has kind of scaled as the company's grown. But when I think of a growth company like Autodesk, seeing R and D come down this much this quickly, like it does raise red flags. And you mentioned the free cash flow target and how they're cautious on expenses so they can hit that free cash flow target. Like a, a lot of bells are ringing in my mind, saying like, "Hey, this is how past." tech companies have kind of gotten into trouble, right? They've focused too much on optimizing and engineering their financial statements versus actually delighting customers and actually growing business value. So I think that would be my first and biggest pushback. I, I, I was very broad there, but I'll just flip it over to you. How yeah. would you respond to that pushback? Yeah, no, that's that's a you know, valid pushback. And, and I mentioned a lot of it uh, in my write-up as well. I was not pleased. Uh, to see this long-term HCF guidance, like you know, I'm, I'm a long, I want, I intend to be a long-term shareholder for Autodesk, and I really don't need to know what they're going to earn like two, three years down the line uh, for free cash flow. Like you know, I would like to think that that's part of my job to kind of figure out, right? You know, what what the potential earnings yeah. power is. I don't disagree with you. It's funny. Like, I don't disagree with you. But at the same time, anytime one of my companies comes out and say, says that, like, it does kind of excite me, right? Like, one of the things that got me excited about Dropbox was I was like, oh, this is a $10 billion company. And they say they're going to do a billion dollars in free cash flow in three years. Like, that's that's pretty cheap. That's pretty interesting, right? So it, right. it's funny how it cuts both ways. But sorry, I interrupt you. Continue. Yeah, I mean, it, it's probably hard to kind of put a bl blanket statement there because yeah, I mean, let's say if your company is not being is not is not appreciated enough by the market, then you have to kind of teach the market, hey, that's a you know uh, FCF potential like three years down the line, like what you guys are doing, right? So, <laughs> so you know, it's 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 probably fine if you kind of you know nudge the market to the direction you are thinking, 
But, uh, but you worry about the I, like IBM's what pops into your head, right? Like they always had that EPS roadmap. And I think even Buffett bought in on that, right? But yeah. they basically blew the, I mean, it's not bankrupt, but they they destroyed any hope that company had because all everything they did was we need to hit the EPS target. And again, they forgot about the business, all the yeah. cash went into buying shares so they could hit their EPS target. But financial engineering, I love financial engineering, but if you're not getting the business right, you're, you're yeah. just kind of levering up a zero. Especially in the technology sector, like, you know, if you are focused on financial engineering, you're probably not going too far. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so here's how I think about, you know, this potential issue is I don't blame uh, Andrew and Agnost or the senior management for providing financial FCF guidance, let's say, for 2020. Uh, like, you know, so in 2017, they had this investor day and they provided this, you know, three-year FCF guidance. I think that makes perfectly reasonable sense to me because they are undertaking like a huge uh, business model transitioning. Like, you know, he basically, you're right that, you know, he uh, he basically turbocharged the process that was already started, but he he, he basically made sure that it is, it's a successful transition from uh, what was started. Uh, and I, I would say, you know, that, that was perfectly fine to provide 2020 free cash flow guidance. I did not quite enjoy having that guidance for 2023, right? Uh, and if they again put out, like, you know, if they have like a, another uh, investor day in 2023 and they provide another like three-year guidance, uh, I'll probably enjoy it even less, right? Uh, I think, you know, once you kind of, uh, once your business model transition is complete, I think the, the like, you know, the biggest fears are gone from the investor's mindset, right? So right now, we kind of know, we kind of understand the earnings potential this company has. So you don't have to tell me, like you don't have to like put down a specific number. Like, you know, they have provided 2.4 billion free cash flow target for 2023, financial year 2023, right? Which is January, 2023. Uh, like, does it really matter if they have like 2.2 billion or 2 billion? I wouldn't worry too much if they decide to, you know what, we need to ramp up my investment in Revit Right, so that I we can milk it for another twenty years, right? That's perfectly fine by me, right? But if you have like two point four billion target, it will be harder for you to kind of do that, right? So, I uh, I, I definitely did not enjoy having that guidance, and I would like I said I would enjoy it even less. Uh, but I think you know uh, they probably felt uh, there's also an interesting dynamic because COVID happened uh, in in twenty twenty. Uh, they they their uh, investor day was uh, in June 2020, so we are still kind of reeling with what COVID will happen, what the implications are, and there's all, all you know there are a lot of beer cases out there in terms of end market softness and how that will impact, let's say Autodesk and you know whether the long term free cash flow uh, is you know lower than many people think. Uh, so maybe uh, management felt the urgency and need to kind of calm investors' nerves that despite all these you know. Uh, uh, uncertainties around COVID and construction sector, we may still be, we, we are still on track to kind of, you know, uh, hit those lofty free, free cash flow target in the out years. So 2.4 billion in free cash flow. I don't disagree with you. Like, I think free cash flow, I think providing a financial target is always hard because as you said, like, if you have a, a an investment staring you in the face, that could return 50% return on capital, but it's going to cause your free cash flows to go from 2.4 to 2.2 bill to 2.2 billion in 2023. 
Well, if you make that investment, you can go communicate it to the market and say, hey, here's why I'm doing it. And a lot of people will do that. But you you have just hurt your credibility uh, credibility a little bit. And you do like you've anchored in your mind. This is what I'm going to do. So you yeah. might say, oh, you know, may, it, maybe it's not a 50 percent. Maybe it's a 20 percent. You, you know, so I'm with you. What would you what would you prefer if they're going to give long term guidance? Would you prefer? Hey, this is just what we think the business can look like in a steady state in the long term. Is that what you prefer? How would you prefer companies provide a long-term framework to shareholders? I so if we talk about it, it's hard uh, to kind of come up with a single framework that will be applicable for every single company out there. So let me just stick to Autodesk here and 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 tell you what I would prefer. I would prefer Autodesk to like I I have high confidence in my mind that it will be extremely high free cash flow generating company, right? And they will generate, like, like I said, you know, 30, $35 billion of free cash flow in the next 10 years. What I would like to see is, you know, a framework, uh, how they want to spend that money, right? Yeah. Uh, if it's talking acquisitions, what are the kind of gaps that they see, which is, this, you know, like within the broader uh, construction, engineering, or manufacturing space, what are the gaps they have? And, you know, and like uh, whether the uh, acquisitions are the primary mode uh, of kind of, you know, making sure that gaps are filled or whether it's going to be increased R&D, right? Or whether it's going to be, or, or, or they think they have kind of pretty much in the locked in, they have all the acquisitions they need and they would just go for, you know, like a buyback spree. Uh, so, and even like when they are doing these acquisitions, I would like to know like what's the framework they have in mind, uh, how they are evaluating themselves internally. Right. So just a brief framework. Think about what Danaher does. Right. It's a pretty clear message they send to the market how they think about acquisitions. And uh, like if you think about Danaher, like you know, it has always been so, you know, like freakish, freaking expensive uh, and optically uh, because market like investors believe uh, in their ability to kind of do this acquisition and and extract value out of those acquisitions. Right. So yeah. there's a huge value out there in the market if you. Uh, are building a platform, and if you have a incredible credibility that you can uh, acquire companies and extract value out of those acquisitions, right? It's, so it's those great. sort of messaging will be uh, more fruitful, fruitful, or more you know encouraging for me than let's say a particular free cash flow. I mean, I think if you spend some time on on Autodesk business, you understand like this is a thirty percent operating margin business at at you know at scale, and it will uh, reach a scale. The real question is. You know whether they will be able to protect their AEC mode, uh, you know AutoCAD mode, and how fast they are likely to grow within manufacturing space, and and, and those and those are the questions that you know people really discuss, that people should discuss. What's their like FCF margins? Like it is a thirty percent operating margin business. And there's like very few doubt in my mind. Uh, when it comes to profitability of the business. Yeah, I, I just want to comment on that and not to get into a, turn this podcast into a long-term target podcast, but like you mentioned Danaher, right? And it, I, I do agree with you and the market has given them credit. And another one I think about is Constellation Software put out yeah, a, a yeah. and you know, they, Constellation Software for my American friends who don't know, including me, uh, they are a, a software roll-up up in Canada, one of the best performing stocks of the past yep. 10, 15 years, I would say. And over the summer, they put out a letter that said, hey, we've been holding ourselves to, I'm going to pull numbers out of my butt here, but we've been holding ourselves to, we will only make an acquisition if it can do 30% return on capital. Right. And that's meant that we can't make some of the larger acquisitions because maybe we're seeing a $50 billion acquisition that we think is a 22% return on capital yep. and we pass on it, but 22% returns great, right? So uh, they put out that letter and I remember a lot of people were saying, 
Constellation is a buy because they just increase their acquisition target. And this is a company that you want to do. And yeah. you want to do acquisitions, they're going to do great. And I agree, I, I would agree with that. I don't have a position, but I would agree with that. But at the same time, when you're talking Danaher and, and Constellation, you do think, oh, the flip side is the Valiant, where, you know, Valiant five years ago, people would have said, oh my God, like do acquisitions, take all of our money. You are the best acquirers in the pharma space you've ever seen. And obviously that blew up and there's plenty of other famous roll-ups. So it, there, there is a line there and, it, and it's tough to, I, I'm not sure, probably management ethics and stuff come into it, but uh, I, I'm not sure where the line is. I, I didn't really make a point there. Anything you want to add to that? Or I do have more questions on it. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I hear your argument. I mean, in many cases in investing, I think there are almost, you know, uh, opposing statements, right? Uh, uh, and, and both can be valid, right? Uh, and that's why we kind of have to kind of look into a case by case basis, yeah. right? Uh, and that's why the stock picking skills and like those sort of things have still value in the in the world out there. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, by no means I'm saying that you know it's a given that they are going to be Danaher, Microsoft, or Constellation Softwares of the construction or you know uh, architecture uh, world. Uh, we have to keep our eyes open whether they are going to be you know Constellation, Danaher, Microsoft, or a Valiant, right? So, I mean, Autodesk is not, is yet to be generating all those, you know, big free cash flow numbers that I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, they, they, they generated like $1.23 billion last year. They'll probably do, do $1.6 billion next year, like this year. So those are not, you know, uh, eye-popping numbers. Those numbers will come probably, you know, two, three years down the line. And once uh, those numbers come, I think we will have a uh, better understanding how they are really spending those free cash flow. And depending on how they choose to spend, uh, we may have to kind of update our belief uh, positively or negatively, uh, depending on how they how they choose to spend. Let's talk. Uh, so a big piece of Autodesk, and I can see how it could be part of the bear case as well, but a big piece of the bull case for Autodesk is this thing called non-compliant users. And a non-compliant user is a person who's using Autodesk. They're basically the, the Netflix user who borrows their neighbor's network, <laughs> right? Yeah. And Autodesk comes out and says, hey, there are 7 million non-compliant users who are using our product multiple times per month and who aren't paying anything. And a big upside is, hey, we're going to get those 7 million users on. And I think you even described they could use the nuclear option where they just say hey, all this non-compliant software. I don't know the the math, the how they would do it, but basically shut out all the non-compliant software next day. And everyone would either have to go use a competitor, pay it for Autodesk, whatever. Uh, so I guess my, my two questions on this would be, A, why is that a nuclear option? Why would forcing non-compliant users to pay be a bad thing? And then B, I mean, everybody's been pointing to the non-compliant users as a bull case, but as a bear case, if so many people can use this for free and so many people, and you feel like using the nuclear option actually would be bad, like why is there so much upside in the non-compliant user? And doesn't the fact there are so many non-compliant users who won't pay doesn't that show that Autodesk might be butting up against kind of the limits of their pricing power? So flip it over to you. Right. So they actually, like, you know, just to give you a context, uh, currently they have 5 million paying subscribers, right? And they actually think uh, roughly 12 million non-compliant, non-paying subscribers out there who they think are potential targets. Like, the actual number is actually more than that, like 15, 20 million probably. Uh, but you know, uh, those are probably not as regular in terms of using the product. So maybe they're not really you know, targetable. Uh, but 
Autodesk thinks there's like, you know, you, the number you mentioned, 7 million. Th these are the, these are the 7 million uh, customers who have used Autodesk products 11 plus times, right? Uh, in the last 90 days. Uh, and they have used like, you know, uh, the version that has been released like in the last one to five years, right? So they are definitely the primary target. Like they are the most likely to kind of uh, convert from non-compliant, non-paying customers to paying subscribers. Uh, but obviously they're not the only set of customers. So Autodesk things overall, I think it's probably 12 million customers uh, that are potentially reachable. Uh, so just think about- And just again, their current base is 5 million. So yeah. their current base is 5 million and they think they're, 7 million who use these frequently and in total 12 million who may at some point they be able to. So, I mean, we are talking the yeah. huge, huge numbers of non right. here. Yeah. So, uh, so it's a huge number out there uh, for sure. And, you know, uh, I, I mentioned in my right of like, if you just convert like even 15, 25% of uh, these non-compliant users, you are looking at like uh, 30, 40% of last year's revenue, right? Which is, uh, like your product, think about your, you know, you are releasing a product and you're, you know, there are millions of people out there who are using it and you are getting absolutely zero dollar out of it. Right. So, uh, and yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, some people think about this is the beer case, right? You know, that they, they, they can't get, uh, you know, any, any revenue out of this, all, all these users. So the reason Autodesk does not want to, that want to use a nuclear option, uh, and I, 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 I feel the same, even like, you know, while building like my subscription business, right? Internet is all about scale, right? Uh, you should always lean more uh, towards reaching scale than let's say thinking about how much I can really, you know, charge for this service, right? Uh, uh, so you would always want to, in the, in the in, like in, the, in any internet, internet business, you should always, leave money up you know, on the table, right? Uh, as long as you have this sense that there is a potential mark, bigger market out there, right? And for Autodesk's case, uh, and that market has been the people who are not paying anything to them, right? So that they can remain the industry standard, right? So if they use a nuclear option, think about, you know, the ba user base is actually larger than the paying customers. So if all the split, you know, users decide to go to a competing alternative who are not as stringent, then even the paying subscribers have, may have reason uh, to kind of go to that customer, right? So That's a great point. That's a great they, point. Yeah, they have to be very cautious in terms of how to approach this. Like, and that, and if it, I, I, I discussed some strategies that they currently use to kind of you know, convert these non-company users. And those are really a nudge, like not something, hey, you are... And you are illegally using my product. You know uh, you should be in jail. Like those are those are, that is not the attitude uh, in Autodesk has. And Autodesk is like, hey, you are using my product anyway. Do do would you like to use the latest version, right? And pay the subscription, right? So it's a very uh, little notch that they are uh, going to use. And there are lots of low hanging fruit that they were not using. So for example, student licensing, uh, which is free, right? And earlier it used to be. Once you have a student license, it, it used to be for three-year period, right? And, and right now, they have to update on an annual basis. My, right. my wife is making her first appearance on the podcast. Alicia, <laughs> okay. to the video subscribers if you want to. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was her first appearance. But, uh, no problem. No problem. Yeah. 
so uh, yeah, so and and there are also things like uh, uh, so they are going, you know, they're pursuing more and more direct sales rather than like in the resellers. Uh, so earlier what ha- used to happen is uh, resellers like they have some target and, and commission and all that, and uh, they would go to the end customer and they would sell let's say five seats and look the other way, allegedly look the other way if the customers actually are using let's say eight or ten seats, right? But uh, for auto, they can, the, the more and more autodesk goes direct uh, to the customers, uh, those possibilities uh, are, will also be you know diminished. So it's not, I don't think, I don't expect uh, that Autodesk will uh, be able to convert 80% of them, right? So it's going to be a low number, but once you have like a subscription model and uh, think about an earlier used to pay the whole license for the, for the whole license, right? So that's a lot of upfront cost that you have to deal with. Now you are like, you know, you're using the product for one month and see, oh, there are a lot of new functionalities that I was, I was not using. So you know, then you use it a little more, and then you become kind of used to it, and uh, that's that's much more likely. Uh, and also, the uh, other thing that I want to mention is not about just non-compliant users. It's also there's like also uh, two million legacy compliant paying customers, right? Yep. That Autodesk is trying to convert to you know, paying subscribers. So that's probably fifty to seventy-five percent of them are probably likely to convert. Uh, to to be paying paying subscribers, so there's like two levers here. One is non-compliant users who don't pay anything, and there are other set of customers who pay pay paid at some point a dollar does, but they just don't use the latest version, or uh, they're just lagging behind in terms of the new functionalities. And eventually, they will uh, you know be paying subscribers at some point. Yeah, no, I just love the the point you made about hey, these paying s- subscribers like. If they went nuclear, that would be actually be an opportunity for competitors because maybe they go to a free competitor and all of a sudden it's not 12 million people are in this ecosystem, 7 million of whom are non-paying, 5 million. It's 7 million might go over there and uh, you, you've almost destroyed your ecosystem, right? Because the 5 million paying might look and say, oh, we used to get value from those 7 million, right? Because it's an ecosystem and uh, now those 7 million aren't here, the ecosystem's diminished. And I, I think of Netflix with password sharing. You know, Recently, I think they're starting to crack down a little bit, but for years, people said, you know, five people will use a password. Why wouldn't anyone? And yeah, you know, it's an issue, but it also takes away a lot of oxygen from other competing services where you can share one subscription among 10 people and you you, you get extra data that way. You get, you, you know, if somebody comes out with a new product, all 10 people look and say, why would we go sign up for that new product? We're sharing one Netflix. So I love that. Let me... Uh, I'm cognizant of time here, so I want to end with the last bear case, and that is just a flat mathematical valuation. You know, this is you mentioned it several times. This is a 30-year-old business, right? More than 30-year-old business yeah. that is trading at 15 times forward revenue, and the business has gotten better. The growth has been good, but you know, 15 times forward revenue for a 30-year-old business, uh, you know, that that's a pretty strong multiple. Uh, what 50 times EBITDA? Again, a thirty a thirty year old business. Yeah. Um, twenty five. I think it's twenty five times the their three year out free cash flow number that they target. None mm-hmm. of these are cheap numbers, right? So, um, if I told you, hey, I convinced this is a good business, but my goal is to outperform the stock market, right? Like, why is buying Autodesk at these multiples? How am I really going to outperform? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill Garley had a had a great you know blog which is probably probably had 10 12 years ago all revenue multiples are not equal right yep. 
So or maybe something like that. I, I may be misremembering the exact title, but that's yeah. like the uh, probably the gist of the title. And that's exactly it uh, for Autodesk as well. Like think about what what you are buying. Uh, you know, uh, when you are let's say buying Autodesk, you are buying an asset that has uh, that d- derives seventy percent of their revenue from a segment where they have quasi monopoly, right? And it has, uh, and 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 even the one that where they are competing, it's an oligopoly, right? So it's it's like the whole ecosystem is basically oligopolistic to monopolistic, right? And it's a ninety percent gross margin business, right? So to me, and and it has like pricing power, it has high switching cost, it has network effects. Like when you when you think in those terms, it it feels almost like the closest thing to superpower. Uh, a business can have, right? And and when you have like ninety percent gross margin, when you have and plus you have pricing power, then you have a lot of leeway to kind of you know uh, invest in your sales and marketing and research and development, right? Uh, and that is very hard unless management does a terrible job, right? Uh, for the competing products to compete with, uh, and. The free cash flow potential, like you are saying, twenty-five times three years from now, right? Just you know, I I would encourage anyone who's listening to just you know model the business out for like you know five ten years, and think about instead of thinking like you know oh right now they generate one point two billion and uh, and let's say uh, they are going to generate two point four billion like in twenty twenty three. Think just think about what you have to assume from twenty twenty three. Let's imagine they hit that number, 2.4 billion in 2023. And then model it out, what you have to assume from 2023 to 2030, let's say. It's that seven-year free cash flow CAGR, right? It's actually, you know, pretty, pretty nominal, right? You know, like uh, as, per, as per the current market price, market is expecting basically 7 8% free cash flow CAGR, which I, I believe it's pretty low. Like, you know, they have pricing power. So for 4 to 6% of, uh, growth, top line growth that can probably continue for two decades, right? Uh, and this decade will probably have a lot of incremental growth opportunities because of this, you know, conversion of non-compliant users, legacy users, uh, you know, growing renewal base from resellers to se- uh, direct sales mix, right? Uh, from higher market share in manufacturing segment, so mm-hmm. it will probably end up like in a low double digit to uh, mid teens growth for this decade. Uh, and if you think about in beyond 2030, we still have like embedded four to six percent growth on the top line. And if they can manage like one or two percent extra, uh, that's you're still looking at like you know seven eight percent growth rates uh, beyond 2030, right? And uh, so uh, in in my mind, uh, it's actually not expensive. At all. You know, having seen some of the software businesses, uh, you know, it feels like you know we are much closer to them. Like uh, uh, you know the potential mar- margin state that you all talk about in the software space. We're much closer to that. Like in two years, we'll probably be closer to that. And beyond that, market is expecting a very plain vanilla sort of growth, which I don't think is the case. You know, uh, uh, even after 2023, I think this business has the capacity to grow uh, at a you know, like I said, you know, mid-teens probably free cash flow CAGR. Uh, so if that's the case, market is definitely not pricing in those potentials. And, and, and even the cases of like, you know, non-compliance, conversion of non-compliance users, these are not one of, one of factors. When you have like, you know, 
10, 12 million of people who are not paying you anything. It will take time and you are not willing to use a nuclear option. It will take you years to kind of, you know, nudge those people uh, and come to your ecosystem to be a paying customer. It will take a long time, but it will happen gradually, which will uh, probably continue way beyond 2023. Yeah, no, I, I just think that the coolest thing is 7 million non, non-compliant users who are using this multiple times per month versus a 5 million paying base. And, you know, that, that just over time capturing that there's just there remains so much optionality from capturing that. And yeah, you're never going to capture 100% of it. You might not even capture yeah. 50% of it. But, you know, if you capture 10% of it, that's it's enormous versus the current financials. And that's going to be compl- basically 100% profit, right? Because, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I think we've covered a lot. Uh, I think this was great, but I do want to, is there anything that you wish we had hit on? You think we kind of missed any, any last words or last thoughts uh, from you here? No, I think we have been speaking for much longer than we spoke like last time around. So I think we kind of discussed all, all, all you know, many different aspects. Uh, well, look, last time we were getting the, the free version of you, but this is, this is you with a paid service to sell. So we, we got to dive a little deeper, spend a little more time on it. Uh, <laughs> Well, look, uh, again, I, I've been a real big fan of the subscription service. I, I, it's very reasonably priced. What is it, 120 a year, 100 a year? I can't remember. 100, 100 per year. Yeah. It, it's very month, reasonably priced. Uh, you know, uh, look, if you get one Autodesk and you get it right, it's going to pay for itself many times over. So I, I think anyone who listens to this podcast and enjoyed this would really enjoy a subscription. Uh, looking forward to having you back on in the next couple months when you uh, you put out another one and you're already chat. But uh, Abdullah from MBI, Mostly Borrowed Ideas. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Looking forward to having you in the future. Thank you so much, Andrew. I've enjoyed speaking with you again and hope to come back sometime in the future. Fantastic.